Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Contours, a podcast hosted by New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. My name is Faisal Aitani. I'm the director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and the deputy editor for New Lines Magazine. Lavius is writing a book covering his experiences and observations across Syria, and his journalism is focused on the situation and experiences of minorities in the Middle East. Specifically, he's done a lot of work on the Kurdish minority, the Yazidi minority, and the Christians in the Middle East. That work has taken him finally to Lebanon, which is the topic of today's discussion. Lavius, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Faisal. Thank you for having me to discuss my recent trip to Lebanon. Some observations that hopefully will be of, of help and interest to the audience. You've had a fascinating set of experiences in the region, and you've chosen a very interesting topic, which is one that's been controversial, divisive, misunderstood, the situation of minorities in the Middle East, particularly in some volatile places like Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria. You're also a French national, so also interested in the perspective and angle that you bring on the matter from that lens. Today, we are going to talk about a number of things related to Lebanon, which happens also to be my native country. But specifically, we'd like to use this angle or lens of the Christian situation in Lebanon as an entry point into examining a bunch of other issues that are interconnected and explain the country's trajectory and situation right now. Now, there's a good reason to be doing this. Lebanon, after months of having no cabinet and having its prime minister resigned, named another prime minister to form a new cabinet. Of course, if you follow Lebanon, you know that the Lebanese economy is in a state of slow collapse. The macroeconomic situation is dismal. There is a currency crisis. There is a banking and finance crisis. There is a debt crisis. Basically, just about every monetary and financial crisis you could have at one point converging at the same time. So people are wondering about what is going to happen to this country. Flavius, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the push or the inspiration that caused you to tackle this question in the Lebanon context, given that you had spent all this time before in the region in Iraq and Syria, where the questions of minorities was also in play. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, that's the origin story uh, of that, that strip. Concurrently, and an interest into understanding the issue from minorities, and in that case, Christian minorities in the neighboring countries, and see how much of the narrative, the dynamics of the situation is similar or different to what extent with what I had observed in Syria and Iraq. I practically had deep go through Lebanon to visit Damascus in 2015, but I had only a superficial understanding and the purpose of the visit was to understand the preoccupation, the mindset within the Christian community as uh, was discussed by, its, by extension of civil society uh, in Lebanon. Flavius, you're an outsider here. You're not making any pretense of obviously being from the region, but you do have a certain perspective that gives you a bird's eye view of how what you got from the situation of these communities and how they were different in Iraq and Syria and, and Lebanon. We know more broadly, of course, that Christians in the Middle East are in a tricky and difficult situation, and that's been the case for the past few decades in the context of the creation of the modern Middle Eastern states and their ideologies, etc., and now with Islamism more recently. But I'm curious to what extent were your impressions or were your preconceptions about the Christian situation in Lebanon reaffirmed or challenged coming from places like Iraq and Syria? 
That's an excellent question. I will start by saying the preconception that I had was as much, if not more, influenced by being in America for, for so long than being a French citizen. And to give you a, a quick illustration, when I asked a friend in Congress, I had brought up, what's the perception of the country of Lebanon when breached, when introduced to, to a member of Congress? And he said, the marine barracks. The bombing of 83? Bombing of mm-hmm. And in many ways, I think it's an illustration of how poor and how PTSD America is with its relations with, with, with Lebanon and, and perhaps the opportunity for a richer, more granular understanding of the composition of the political and, and so social landscape. The one manifestation of that relatively limited lens or past recent history, the understanding of recent history in, in Lebanon, because of the demography and being on the ground and engaging with the communities there, I could have a, a richer understanding. You should tell us a bit about the profile of people you met with. But first, I should probably give a bit of context here. Of course, we are talking about a country that is, by most estimates, at least a third Christian, which is unusual in itself in the Middle East. And you are also talking about a region where, despite the fact that Christians have faced difficulties in Lebanon, however imperfect, this system has given them a place at the table, so to speak, yeah. politically, which makes a different sort of a situation. And of course, this is also a context in which the Christians used to dominate the political system until the 1990 put an end to the civil war. So in that light, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the sort of people you spoke to yeah. and what kind of questions you posed, basically, Absolutely. what were you trying to find out? For lack of knowledge or for the expediency sake, the Christians in the Middle East encapsulated in that, what we call in France, the Chrétien d'Orient, and with the recent history and tragic history for Christian and other minorities in Syria and Iraq, under the same label of persecution and tragedies. To some extent, there is some truth to that. The attrition rate of the Christian community allegedly Lebanon, the highest depth of departures. So members of that community who are leaving Lebanon is higher than other communities. This is especially true after the explosion. Yeah. Since August 8th, when there was this industrial explosion, yeah. essentially, at the right. port, you're saying that the rate of immigration of Christians has been higher? Yeah, that's what I'm that's finding that I... Mm-hmm. So, for example, an illustration, 400 Armenian families left the country within two weeks to go to Armenia, which already then was not a place necessarily where you would expect rain, rain, you would not expect a place where you would aspire to for a better life. Partly this is due to the location of the explosion, the, the port and the surrounding neighborhoods is the historical Christian neighborhood. It's also a very vibrant economic and social base, but the damage were to 300, 400, even more meters radius from the explosion. I mean, when you when you know that phosphate, phosphate... Modium nitrate, right? Modium nitrate, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Modium nitrate is, is actually used for IEDs. Yeah. For its, you can imagine the, the destructive capability and the shockwave was felt all the way to where I was in Mount Lebanon. So about 25 minutes drive. Mm-hmm. The explosion itself was destructive, but the shockwave was just as destructive. If you remember the Armenia Street, there was when I walked there, almost two years later, there was still no bars fully revealed, no restaurants fully revealed. Thanks to COVID, there were so few, which is still a tragedy, there were so few victims. Since COVID, you would have much higher rate mm-hmm. of casualties, and that's across communities. It has affected an economic center, a vibrant place in the, of Beirut, the historical Christian neighborhood, and that many see that as the turning point in terms of their safety. And of course, it affects those who can move out and those who can leave, and those usually are higher educated and, and financially Thereof, but they, they don't see a future for themselves and their children in the country as, as it is. And obviously, the economic crisis compounded that 
bit more because you you can use your credit card. And so essentially, it is pretty much like Syria in that respect to go to the black market or go and come back with the black market centrate, which kept increasing the gap between the official and the black market and kept increasing during that stay. One dollar is, is $1,400. And so when you go to the restaurant today, you have the price in, uh, if you use your credit card, so you have the official, you, you, you're so under the official exchange rate. And so a meal would cost a hamburger in, it costs you $40, you know, with a drink. If you use your credit card versus $4 or $8, if you have done the exchange under all cash. So obviously dire situation, and partly because of geography, you had a subset of the Christian community that was disproportionately affected. I get that. Having said that, this is a country with a lot of people in it, lots of different perspectives, a lot of problems. And when you interact as a journalist with somebody who is Christian, they could answer one of several ways about what the essence of the problem is. First of all, they could give you an answer that has nothing to do with them being Christian, but them being Lebanese and stuck in this situation, versus something that's more communal, more communitarian. What was your impression of people's diagnosis of what was going on around them, to what these things could be attributed? Whether you were asking someone who's speaking as a Lebanese Christian, or someone who happens to be a Lebanese Christian, but is having a conversation with you. Absolutely. How you see the drivers of the crisis a priori determine how you perceive the reason of the conflict and the solution, right? And to give you a bit more background on the similarity and the differences mm-hmm. with the other countries, the very countries I didn't mention, the differences, this was on the attrition rate. But structurally, the Christians are not a minority there. I mean, they, you can argue that over time the numbers have increased relatively. But they have a say in the power sharing, they're seat at the table. Where in, in Iraq and in, uh, in Syria you're talking about dignitude, as, as I'm saying, right, the, the, the role of minority, and that of course has consequences in their um, capability to uh, affect political fate. Uh, that's a big nuance, and I think it's also uh, it shows that how careful you want to be to apply to generalize narratives from one country to the other. That say you have large number of the patriarchal from Syria came to, to Lebanon. Now you see the Syriac Orthodox. Patriarchal both houses on, on the way up to Mount Lebanon. So historically, the, the Christians were a founding member part of, of, the, of the country, and, and therefore, it, as such, it is, it is different. It is also a structure that promotes the, the communitarism, the confessionalism based system, where in case of Syria, with the Baha'i party, it's nationalism, you don't have you don't have such a stability. Mm. So, that the, some, some will tell you demography ultimately will, in relative terms, diminish their, their power, but how the country was built guarantees a role and some form of uh, protection and voice that uh, Syria doesn't have, for example, or, or even the Iraq doesn't have. Okay, so structurally, obviously, different. How does this translate into attitudes, self-perceptions, and perception of one's environment? What are some of the impressions you got during your research? So if you're not kind of minority in, in perpetual danger, but obviously there is also, I mean, I say this as a Lebanese person who has partly Christian family, there is also something called the Lebanese Christian experience. And part of that experience is, as I understand it, there is a grievance or an anxiety that's there. It may be felt unequally between people, and it may lead to very different political conclusions. But it's a real thing. So we've separated it from the Syria-Iraq situation, but it is something, and cannot but color political attitudes. It does, and at the same time, because of that unique history and recent history of Lebanon, all sects have had their militia or are so close. The civil war involved everyone, 
there was an attempt for political parties to go beyond sectarian sectarianism that might or might not have failed. So there is actually a community of of, of, disti- of dis- community of destiny, community of destiny that they share with with the other communities. That despite claims of differences, you see that common thread of a shared recent past and therefore identity. The struggle between the young generation not to collaborate or tolerate even those who have had who come from the legacy of the civil war that have had blood on their hands, some would say militia, that's across the board. If you mm. talk to democracy activists, it doesn't matter whether they are Shia or Christians, right? And I think it points to the what was interesting to me to observe the generation gap. You have overall a, a younger generation that you can argue in broad terms came from the Arab Spring. Essentially, you know, their concerns are more toward issue-based and uh, pragmatic policy-based transparency, good governance, who for them, identity-based, confessionalist-based, clientelism or politics is something they associate with l'ancien regime, with the, with the old way, and that had produced the, the civil war, that has produced a system that is you know, kleptocratic, clientel-based, uh, sort of confessionalist-based clientelism, and that they want to leave behind. So the, their concern is uh, on issues and not on, uh, on identity. Protecting an identity is not on the top of their list because for them it's how do you treat minorities that matters more than we are at risk because of our confession. How do you treat women? How do you treat... Uh, Vulnerable uh, people. Everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that is an agenda doesn't suffer compromise with other 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 factors. You can see that here to put a parallel with the movement to fight against authorization, right? So, uh, as mentioned, we, we we don't want to be authorizing the other individual based on their ethnic or religious identity. On the other hand, when they talk about their parents, that's not limited, of course, to generation divide, but it exists. It is the anxiety that uh, the future of of the Christian of the Christian community in large parts tomorrow night is not uh, guaranteed under the, the current equation, and not only because you have the government that is has issue of corruption and governance, but also because they see that over time the institutions are increasingly skewed away from the the Christian say in the, in the, in the power arrangement, in part because of demography. So you went from eighty percent Christian in the creation of Lebanon to now about the third. Third, um, ultimately, that reality is going to catch up institution. Uh, Taif also is the power share, yeah. which can also argue is because of the, the war in the Christian laws in many many respects. That is the long view of, of some, uh, uh, especially from the older generation, that we are not able to sustain control over our, our, our destiny in a, in, a, in a system that not only is corrupt but slowly marginalizes us as a founding as a founding group, uh, as founding constituent of the of the of the, of the state. So in a sense, the first view, or maybe sensibility is the better term for it, that you described is that of the liberal, small l, liberal, civic, democratic activist. I think we can agree that across various Lebanese sects, these guys look very similar to one another, by definition, obviously, otherwise they would not be progressive liberal activists, but they hold to a kind of universalist ethos, a civic ethos that transcends this communitarian identity. Uh, I don't know how many people in Lebanon are or are not like that, and I don't want to be one of those guys who speculates, but I do know there's obviously many, many young and old people who are outside that category on all sides. 
And in a sense, the interesting question analytically, if we're trying to understand this place and its trajectory, is what if you are one of those people who does actually identify quite strongly with your sect and does see politics through that prism, then what are you likely to say is going wrong in this country? And what are the community's options for getting out of it? Because the liberal case, we're familiar with it, and there are challenges. But this sort of inertia that's still there in the community, that's interesting to try to get a handle around, given that things in the country are meaningfully changing for the worse, but they are meaningfully changing. Try to understand from your impressions and perspectives what those sentiments are. Yes, you have multiple factors, a different degree of, of um, how much you weigh those factors as an individual uh, will, will predict or influence your, your position. A little bit more on, on the perception of the self-perception of the, the, the role as, a, as not only a, a funding uh, constituent of the Lebanese state, but also as a, a mediator uh, between communities, between Sunni and, and Shias. Yeah. Uh, not, we've seen that in politics recently. But also, uh, anecdotally, you, I often hear examples where when you have a conflict in, in between Jews and another community or between Shia and another community, the, the Christians will, will be the bridge or that you have villages where Christians and other, other sects will, and these tend to be more of a working model, quote unquote. So there's this perception also that it's a, it's a, it's a key as a bridge, as a cement of the, of the Lebanese identity as a nation, right? Or as a country. And, and that the problem lies not so much, and another threat is the problem lies not so much into a loss of demography or being ostracized or um, communitarist, of course, the others being communitarist, uh, was, I guess, in our interest. But uh, the, the clanic, family based kleptocracy system, which is more here for a class, you know, the class of, of leaders. So to give a chance to the system, if you can get rid of the, the ruling class and uh, for some the uh, nomination of the so that the sectarian system can in theory stay right. but not with this not with this raw material. Exactly. <laughs> right, exactly exactly. You want to change the software and keep the hardware yeah, exactly. the hardware is not so much of the problem. It's exactly. And um, exactly kind of the oligarch running the, the show and not so and then institutions are facade, right? And that, and then the election again, the nomination of the prime minister would, would fit that picture. Yeah, absolutely. Between the monde des affaires and in politics, the ruling class, um, the establishment, they would say. Absolutely. In, America. Yeah. in terms of the intelligentsia, you have had a revival or move into the direction of adapting the concept of federalism to the to Lebanon. So that's an old idea as well. Right. Right. It's, uh, right. It, right. It, it, was something that was a dynamic idea in the civil war. It was promoted openly by the Lebanese forces and not only them. But now you're saying it's making the rounds again, so to speak, in the conversation. I would be interested in your opinion, what was the driver behind pushing that idea for the Lebanese forces of federalism as a, as a solution to the political crisis back then that you, you mentioned? I think one of the premises, so within the context of the civil war, conversation was, the conversation, I mean, the fight within the community was how big and to what extent can Lebanon be one of the same? But to what extent should Lebanon be one united centralized state, given that it has to be somehow shared or co-inhabited with 
the Muslims and, of course, their armed ally at the time, the Palestinian militias. And one of the threads was, look, at the end of the day, the best kind of Lebanon for the Christians is to kind of shrink its parameters and make it more manageable, more demographically homogenous, more defensible geographically, and with some sort of international alliance or partnership or something of that sort that would make it sustainable. Now, when you're talking in the context of a civil war, the idea itself was something more rigid and more extreme. This idea that essentially Lebanon is collapsing, so we have to consolidate and redraw what it is we think is worth keeping. I do think, I mean, this is what the Lebanese forces themselves say. For obvious reasons, there's a kind of stigma over the whole dividing Lebanon thing, and that's still strong, including among the Christian community for many. But now there's, the discourse is a bit different. Now it's, first of all, we're not in a civil war, and no one is in literal physical threat of being eliminated. So now the conversation is more like localism, local governance, decentralization, guarantee of rights, and uh, like you know, federalism in the, in the classic sense, rather than just plain old military partition and defense. Now, I think this is a kind of some of the, somewhat more palatable idea to more people than the kind of discourse of the Civil War, uh, understandably so. Uh, and it's something they're still pushing hard on, but it's not what they spend most of the day talking about because it's sensitive. So now there's kind of more basic, immediate things that need to be achieved. What those things are, I'll let the Lebanese forces explain themselves. I don't want to speak on their behalf. But those ideas, are, they're still around. This idea of confederation and uh, decentralization and things like that. Of course, like anything in Lebanon, like any issue, any idea, there's the idea in the political science sense, which we can have an interesting conversation. And then there's, oh, what are you really talking about? Which is, every Lebanese conversation is on those two levels. Kamal Salibi, rest in peace, he called it the great Lebanese confidence game. And uh, I don't want to engage in it. So you tell me what people told you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and thank you for bringing that uh, deeper understanding of the layers of the conversation uh, within the Lebanese society that I, of course, I, I am missing in my parachutage there. But indeed, it's interesting you mentioned that on the, the intellectual, political, and the the, re, the the meaning that it had, it carries for those who are in Lebanon, for the Lebanese itself. On the intellectual, political, there is uh, certainly a, an echo or piggybacking on that decentralization that come, that you find in the Taif Agreement and the Civil War. Part of the reasoning is decentralization doesn't matter when you have a system that is so uh, corrupt, plutocratic, and uh, centralized and degrading by the day. So you need to be more forceful into uh, redistributing power. So it's actually come from a sort of constitutional uh, solution to make decentralization to make decentralization actually work. You need to set up federal federal structure. So you uh, delegate, distribute, and you hand some of the uh, prerogative to the to the region. And here, so and it so happened that here the region will be based on some kind of already existing. Um, communitarist density or distribution, but not an ethno-nationalist. Not a not a blatantly confessional one. You mean? Confessional, confessional, exactly. Okay. The confessional. Let me read. So, yeah, okay. based not, not on geography, but either but on the other hand, not neither. Sorry, not on geography, neither on a purely confessional basis, but more of compromise, like in Belgium. So Belgium is the case that, that was mentioned to me that it can, you can make it work and also in recent history in 1975. So that, that's sort of the, the discourse to the outside, to the, to the global audience, but I think also in, in the debate, the constitutional law professor in, in Beirut I met has, has launched, is launching a party 
not to be jumping right in the fight now, but to build some momentum beyond the Christian community for later on to have potentially a role. But so there is this also move toward. So to kind of bring this idea mainstream outside the... Bring this idea mainstream. Interesting. And I I guess try and shape the narrative and perception that would come with something that is so loaded by care, by, you know, uh, doing a... uh, now to reach to other communities. Interesting. Their, their, their interest also lies and it has a pre- it has precedent and it has yes, uh, yes, yes. in the international communities for the best interest of all. Uh, now, of course, the perceptions uh, will probably be affected by who the recipient of, of the message is, but this, this group of, of this intelligence is, is confident that it could have an appeal. Interesting. Okay. And that's that's for the future there and for you to know, to, to know better. So there is a... There is one. So one perspective is to revive or bring the, the as a solution. In fact, as a natural solution for some movement toward decentralization that is accepted. It's part of the uh, resolution of the of the CUR. and also answer in, in part answer the answer the, the deadlock that you have in politics. Say, hey, you know, it's a. Uh, it's the best of both worlds. You get to keep the republic. You get to protect your protect your rights for those who are for those who are concerned about it, right? Yes, and and, and it, it it solves some of the uh, accountability and transparency problem because it's more local. The power is more local. That's one solution. That's one construct on that same solution club. You have who agree on the symptoms, the corruptions, and the kleptocratic corruption. I think is enough to say that is the civil society uh, the offshot from the two thousand nineteen. Uh, protest, which they called the revolution in October when 2019, when the young people, for the most part, came out to protest against the country, took it to the street, to protest against the country, sorry, political corruption and, and Western government. And in large part, they see that that was a failure. We didn't win on the street. They, they were beaten up for, for a large part by the militia affiliated with the leader of the parliament at the time. That was a failure. Actually, the, some parents told me how they... Still leader of the parliament. Still leader of the parliament. <laughs> not to name anyone. And some parents told me like, oh, it was frightening to see their... That they, for, for some of them, they believed in the cause and they say, okay, express your, your voice. But when they saw their kids coming with a uh, bleeding, uh, bleeding head, it, uh, it also, I think, reinforced the perception that you can reform the system as it is. And where, the, where some in, their, in the younger generation will see power doesn't give up without the fight, some of the older generation will see that, oh, it was a Shia militia. <laughs> I do want to press you a bit on this, although I don't know to what extent it was possible to have fully transparent conversation about it. But we can't have this conversation about Lebanon without talking about Hezbollah. Now, you were referring to another Shia militia, I guess in this case, quote unquote, which was the police, the parliamentary police belonging to Nabi Birri. But there's also this kind of elephant in the room whenever you talk about Lebanon and its future, which is Hezbollah. It's an armed Islamist militia, obviously the single most powerful actor probably in the country, uh, and shares this country with many, many Christians who at the moment they have to think about this problem, have to think about how they feel about it, what the implications for their community are, what can be done about it, etc. And that's a very loaded and complicated question for all Lebanese, but for them, I think in particular, one of the things about the Lebanese Christian community politically, I think you can say, is at least at this point in time, it is the most pluralistic or competitive or kind of diverse political landscape, whereas on the Shia and Sunni side and Druid side, you've had much more consolidation under single party. Uh, So given that you have this broad, vast array of viewpoints, on the Hezbollah question, I've also always been fascinated 
by how that problem has been processed. I could say maybe it breaks down basically into two camps, but maybe there's actually a bit more more going on than that. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of the question. I'd like to hear what your impression was. It's, it's not only a case, as you said, who do you ask, but also what are you talking about? When there's a flare-up, which there was between Israel and the, the Hezbollah last month, the frustration of anyone the frustration of many would be, did Hezbollah ask me before sending a car-sized missile to Israel? So, yes, there is the freedom fighter for the Palestinian cause, absolutely. But there's also this uh, uneasiness with the lack of representation, democracy. Uh, they, they were not consulted when they took sure. their attacks. Mm. And to that, you have the conspiracy theory. In fact, it's the puppet leader, and Nasrallah is the puppet of the Israel and the CIA. That's, that's one. Uh, then there is the actual cost of that fight, for which it has it is for many considered as legitimate, but when you have Israel bombing uh, the airport, uh, I mean, the, my, my host would describe how he would go to work to West Beirut, the airport, and see the mushrooms. I mean, imagine if we are sitting here and you go to work from um, Columbia Heights and you see Roslyn being bombed. I mean, the, tra- the trauma, which also raised the question of the impunity of some of those strikes, right? I mean, uh, the civilians died uh, when the Israel, it's the um, 2006, right? Was, uh, yeah, I think the, the Lebanese have sort of come to expect that this is what happens when there's a confrontation. But, but true, exactly. But it it's baked into the calculation of how they feel about Hezbollah. Exactly. It doesn't take away from the trauma of giving to those experiences and... Uh, no, of course, of course. And, yeah. and, and, and what it represents for, for anyone who has to goes to work and see the place being bombed, right? Of uh, course. Your city. I, I guess it comes back to that dual identity uh, of just the, the fighter, so the, the conflict with Israel, which the, the legitimacy derived from fighting for the, the Palestinian cause, and its role into internal politics as a, as a political party, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at that for, for the democracy activists, it's a big problem. Uh, because for many parties, actually, first, it is the most powerful, as you said, uh, in terms of uh, firepower today in, uh, in, in, uh, in Lebanon, and it has not given up weapons, although the Taif Agreement said that... Uh, it's, the, 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 it's, a, it's allowed to keep their weapons as long as Lebanese land was under occupation. Right. But that was supposed to... The argument is that that finished in year 2000, why do they still have weapons? So that's probably but, also a question of interpretation. It's interesting. <laughs> so the argument would run that they have not... They didn't do their part of the document, so uh, also lack of legitimacy because of that act or absence of, of, of thereof, and and obviously the lack of multi uh, of dissent and challenge to their rule. I mean, we, we we saw very sadly two weeks ago this activist was killed. Many say by Hezbollah democracy activist in the, in the south. Many say it's because of uh, the, the weapons are used internally to quell dissent within their constituency, so yeah. that with the assassination of Lokamsvim, which is for many Lebanese, uh, perhaps ironically, counterintuitive, because when I asked them how they compare with the situation with Iraq and Syria, the answer I got was, well, you know, that's the advantage of, of the current structure, political structure, is that they can't agree to kill us. Well, when we are in their fief, maybe not. <laughs> they don't need to, to uh, decide um, amongst them, to agree amongst themselves. Um, roadblock on the, the barrier on the, or an impediment on the road to democracy yeah. as it's functioning. Okay. Nonetheless, it emerges as the largest uh, power broker, the largest political party that touch upon its, how it is understood in, uh, in, the, in the Western context or in America is by limiting ourselves to its uh, terrorist designation and terrorist activities. We tend to 
uh, ignore or, or not understand the role it has in the base society. And in fact, it's a trap, some, some, uh, some people tell me, because it is also not showing, not, it's also taking, it's also distracting, excuse me, from how much it is part of that political culture, corrupted kleptocratic clientelist political culture, if the West limits itself at, as uh, considering Hezbollah through its terrorism activities or... So it kind of makes them transcendent group that's in a compartment by themselves, Correct. apart from... Correct. Whereas, I guess this particular criticism is, actually, it's worse than that, they are part of the system. So, therefore, that's actually the most damning thing you could say. For, for Lebanese, exactly, because it's... Uh, because also, of course, they are leveraging that politically. And of course. The yeah, problem, yeah, of course. The yeah. problem we have is the, is the sanction, let's say, mm. and the US uh, imperialism. And that's taking away the, the kind of scapegoat to, to, to apply the you know, model, uh, apply to the institution. And then it's taking away from actually their active role into the corruption and the. And the that's interesting. Yeah. The French, of course, have had pretty profound connection to Lebanon for a long time. People in Lebanon used to call it basically the benevolent mother, if you translate it from Arabic. I'm pretty sure not everybody in Lebanon felt that way. But historically, the Maronites in particular have had that uh, special connection to France, so to speak, at least at one point. And France, of course, had the mandate authority over Lebanon before it became an independent country. You could even say they created it. Uh, So having said that, Uh, Judging from the French reaction to the macroeconomic and political crisis of the past couple of years, we saw that President Macron got heavily involved quickly in pushing for a political compromise in Lebanon that would start or lay the groundwork for a meaningful reform process that hopefully would save the country from exactly what's happening to it now. Um, And the attitude seemed to be that basically President Macron is here and he's going to tell you guys what to do and stop acting like children and France is back. Basically, uh, it didn't work that way, obviously. Uh, what ended up happening was essentially he was ignored and then really realized that maybe he bit off more than he could chew. Uh, but I wonder if you could give us your impression of the French calculation here. What does France care about in Lebanon and what does France think needs to happen? And what's your impression of what they are doing? And if you had another impression, do you have any idea or any gauge for attitudes people had, anybody you spoke to, about the French? I think the lack of much conversation and perspective on the opinion is, is an answer in itself. It does not, as you said, it has not produced yet result beside a, a posture, which is in part explained by the, by the historical role. Also the fact that France, even with Iraq and Syria, tried to have a, a, a mediating role mm. during the, during the Americans. That's a good point. Yeah. Some formalities, appointing a special ambassador to resolve the crisis, and, and some genuine interest into into stability. As on as on other foreign policy issues, there is a question of means and the question of resources. And uh, there were some highly meaningful and, and, and symbolical act by France the the day after the explosion uh, in Beirut in 2020, August 2020. Uh, the industrial explosion. Uh, France had the army, corp, the navy corps of engineers, who sat into the port on their on the ship. It sat into the port and and uh, removed the debris uh, over overnight for forty well, forty days, if I remember correctly. And that was appreciated. But many debris remains today, and there is much more work needed. I don't think it's it's moving away from its perceived historical role into Lebanese affair. 
and the, 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 the stability of the country, but it's also a question of, of means, of resources and priority on the, on the, on the part of France. And, and simply stated, it's a very complex, very hard situation that not one country can resolve. Like it perhaps used to be a um, hundred years ago when you, the political academy, you, were, uh, you had clear fault lines and, and, and um, you had a battlefield that was easier to navigate for a for foreign sponsor. Makes sense. Um, mm. But just like with just like with the international community in general, France is looking for solutions that prevent uh, going even further deeper in the crisis. But that's paradoxically is not helping as we were discussing earlier a long term solution because by condoning, for example, the uh, nomination of the prime minister, activists will tell you, democracy will tell you, well, you're reinforcing entrenching even more the, the system of, uh, of kleptocracy and, and corrupt class. You, you, uh, you give it another lease you know, on life. And that's perhaps the short-term uh, solutions if you want to keep things from completely crashing the train from completely crashing, but it's just making the train crash slow motion, right? So I, in, in, in that respect, the fact that there was goodwill, uh, Macron came, but whether it's whether it's those who had high hope on on on, uh, uh, on French patronage that or those or those witnessed the act of goodwill, not only President Macron but also the the, the, the presence of help the next the day after sure. with the Corps of Engineer. But I think the follow-up in terms of actual uh, long-term intervention and solutions are not there. I don't know if it's financially, I don't know if it's a lack of resources, mm. or just that you know there is no uh, easy answers for France today to fix the... the and, and that ties back to the complexity and the, the challenge of the current crisis that has so many dimensions. The, the financial stability is not just a, a bailout at this point. You need to reestablish trust into the currency, trust within the, the debt lenders, those who have uh, the, the, the national debt, and that's not one country only. It's not only France. Like perhaps it would have been a century ago. It's in the international, you know, markets. And to do so, there are there are prescriptions that a country needs to take. That yeah. probably France alone cannot compel the, the Lebanese government to take. One of these, I call a friend of a friend, who is an economist at the OECD. Uh, in, in English, it's OECD as well. Right? Yes. OECD. OECD. In fact, OECD. Mm-hmm. I called a friend of mine who's the economy, monetary economist at OECD, and the answers in terms of the monetary policy is pretty well done. Has worked in the past with uh, multiple countries like Poland, uh, Argentina, is to have a constraint on the central bank ability to devaluate the, the currency in order to restore trust into the, the currency and, as such, um, lay the ground for. Uh, economic rebound in the, in, the, uh, in the economy that that requires a minimum of accountability and check and balance because the the, the model uh, the precedent is uh, um, revolves around a law called the currency board which France has been by the way pushing recently uh, because it is the well-known antidote a law passed by the parliament that will restrain the ability of the central bank to devaluate or reevaluate yeah, to, to ensure some predictability and ensure, uh, which would in the short term be detrimental to some of the capability of the government to subsidize um, and to keep functioning to keep the economy from functioning but the theory yeah. is that it's, it's theory in the, the recent history practice is that it benefits the winners of the country after the, the transition from devaluation to currency support to then economic growth about two years three years but the short-term losers are those who benefit from that 
um, uh, situation of double exchange rate. And those who have uh, access to, uh, um, uh, for, to foreign dollars, to, uh, to hard currency, market, yeah. hard currency uh, but also the government itself in its ability to, to subsidize uh, some of needed needed uh, relief um, um, mm-hmm. goods as as, uh, as as well. The challenge here is that so inside observe, inside your observer, observer the democracy activists that maybe I use too much democracy activists because I'm a little bit of a black box. Some observer of the current government, Lebanese. Uh, Pay attention to developing governments. They would tell you that the interests of the parliamentarians are too too much vested into the statu quo. So, ce monde des affaires, of which actually the prime minister is the main Absol- absolutely yeah. that they don't want to look to be on the on the, on the losing side of that uh, current support. And also the fact that the situation that you need the current support, that the situation that, that Lebanon is not a, a economist who would tell you, uh, and in a situation where you could not repay its foreign debt, is that. The loans that he, 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 he sought were not put to productive investment, productive activity, which typically would be a, a sign of corruption or detournement. Here you have an interesting world, a kleptocratic or dysfunctional parliamentary system that doesn't work for the public good, if you, if you wish, or doesn't, doesn't have accountability and transparency in its, uh, in its decision. And its impact on the financial crisis that cannot be resolved because it will require for the Functioning parliament to exercise to, to exercise its role, and in the absence of a current support, no one the, 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 the one belong because the yeah of course why shouldn't they yeah I wouldn't. We started this by speaking about the Christian situation in Lebanon, but we've covered a lot more ground than that, including some things that are uniquely challenging to that sect and its future and its role in Lebanon, what that looks like, and things that are obviously transcending any one sect's problems, whatever their own prescriptions for solving those problems are. And that most immediately is the economic crisis, but also is the broader question of how do you design a political system for a pluralistic country in the Middle East uh, that actually works or at least does the basic tasks of governance well. Uh, You've been very generous with your time and your travels have taken you to some interesting places. It's the the departing words to bring it back to the Beltway, full circle back to America, is in terms of what the call to action or what what, what could, how could that possibly inform from a U.S. policy from perspective, US perspective <laughs> the consideration of continuing the support or engaging with the grassroots democracy movement, and to ensure that in the wider geopolitical consideration with Iran, engaging with Iran or Syria, support to democracy and democracy activism doesn't fall through the cracks, mm. and that started just safety of, of those who pushing for perhaps not so short term but longer term more transparent or representative system across confessions um, is, is, is a message that uh, I, I, I heard. The message is heard loud and clear. Thanks for all your time. I've had the, I think, many more interesting stories to tell we haven't tapped into here. I wish you luck on whatever work you continue to do on Lebanon in particular, especially it's obviously something you're very interested in. I know you're working on a fascinating book on your experiences and observations in Syria, Syria Ground Zero. I wish you all the best with that, and I can't wait to read it. Thank you very much, Flavius, and thank you all for listening. Have an excellent day.